the Recovery Executive Podcast with your host, Nick Jaworski. We bring you the business of recovery because those struggling with addiction need you to be here tomorrow as well as today. Thank you for joining me here on the Recovery Executive Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Jaworski, owner of Circle Social Inc., a strategic marketing and consulting firm for behavioral health and addiction treatment. Today, I'm interviewing Tom Britton. He is the president and CEO of Gateway Foundation. I'm very excited to have him on here. Our conversation is around clinical outcomes and how to use them in an effective way, both internally as well as for outside relationships with payers. But before we jump into that, I do want to hear from our incredible sponsors. Professionals like those that listen to the Recovery Executive Podcast know that technology-assisted care is improving all aspects of healthcare. Addiction treatment is no different. Soberlink is an accountability tool that's helped thousands of people in early recovery. If you haven't heard of Soberlink, it's a discrete alcohol monitoring system with real-time results and reports. You can improve your client's outcomes with the latest technology recommended by four out of five treatment providers. For a limited time and for Recovery Executive Podcast listeners, you can get a free Soberlink device by visiting www.soberlink.com free. Thank you as always to Soberlink. So as many of you know, one of my main focuses in the space is really data and tracking both at the business level, at the marketing level, as well as the clinical level. And to that end, we're actually currently working on an entire uh, backend database warehousing and real-time visualization dashboard to merge the data across clinical, uh, finance, marketing, call centers, and business development to have an all-in-one kind of component to understanding the not just the business operations, but also the outcomes that are coming from the program. And it's something near and dear to my heart. And so Tom was actually featured in Treatment Magazine recently on this exact topic of clinical outcomes. And so I really wanted to bring him on the show and you will be just incredibly impressed. Uh, He has a very deep insight and understanding of the field and the need for data and how to make data work for the organization. So before he came into Gateway Foundation, there was not nearly the level of data and tracking that was in place um, currently, but not only did he start tracking that data, but then he was able to take that data and create what we call a feedback informed care loop. And so that happens when you take your data and you start to understand what's working and what's not working, then feed that back into a programmatic level. So creating better programs as well as an individual granular level with clinicians, helping clinicians create better treatment uh, on their end. And then also financially helping the organization from a reimbursement standpoint, having better relationships with the payers and better contracts with the payers related to some of the outcomes that you're providing. So a lot of value in this conversation. I'm very excited to have Tom on. Let's jump in. Hey, Tom, really appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule to come on the show here today. Can you just tell us a little bit about yourself, your role over there at Gateway Foundation? Sure. Uh, and thanks for having us. It's, uh, it's always good to be on, Nick. Um, so I'm Dr. Tom Britton. I'm the president and CEO of the Gateway Foundation. And Gateway is a 52-year-old organization that started on the south side of Chicago, really as kind of a community outreach kind of thing, and then has evolved year over year over year. And we're now 
the largest nonprofit in the country doing addiction treatment. So we serve almost 9,000 people a day uh, in nine states throughout the country. Wow. Wow. I don't think I realized you guys were that big. Wow. And that's full continuum of care, correct? We do. You know, so we have community-based programs that uh, have residential treatment, detox, uh, outpatient, partial hospitalization, all that kind of stuff. And that type of program, we are in Delaware, Illinois, and California. Uh, we also have a correctional um, footprint where we treat people that are incarcerated because of substance use. Um, and so a lot of the people that we treat, you know, there's 2.2 million people behind bars in the U.S., and the estimates are 70% are there because of drug-related um, either crimes or under the influence, but only about 200,000 people receive treatment. So that's mm -hmm. a huge part of our mission and passion. Oh, it's really interesting. Well, that, that'd be something to dig into on maybe a different podcast. <laughs> sure. That'd be fun. <laughs> Um, so why, why I asked you to come on the show, I was, I was really interested and intrigued in an article that you were featured in, in treatment magazine that came out recently. And it was about the importance of tracking clinical outcomes. You mentioned it as something that's really critical to the future of the industry. And I was just wondering if you could kind of start and give us a little bit of insight in, into your perspective there. Sure. I mean, I'll, I'll first say, you know, I started as a clinician in the early nineties and, what I lived through in the period from 90 and the early 2000s was really the professionalization of the field. You know, it used to be very pure, professional-driven. It had a 12-step component. You know, there was medicine and things like that, but it was, it was very different than it is today. And as we have professionalized over the last 20 years, we've added licensed counselors, we've added doctors, we've learned much more about medication-assisted treatment. Um, but there's not a consistent ability and competence in the field on what outcomes should we look at, why do we look at outcomes, investing in outcomes, and then taking what we learn from outcomes and both making the product better that you're offering and making the outcome recovery rates better for the people that you serve. So the mission of the Gateway Organization is to reduce substance use and co-occurring mental health through effective and efficient care. And so this falls completely in line uh, with the Gateway Organization. It's why I joined it, frankly. Hmm. And you mentioned there the really difficult piece that I think comes up in these conversations all the time is there isn't a standard of care out there. There isn't really uh, expectations around what should be tracked or what's even valuable to track. So what kind of data points are you currently measuring and how did you come up with those? That's a great question. And, and I'd even take a step back from that, Nick, and say there's not even standardization around what ACM level 3.5 residential treatment is, for example. You know, there's thousands and thousands of faces of that. And so you'll have one program that says they're doing 3.5 um, that has 20% of the staffing levels of another one that says they're doing 3.5. And I think we as a field need to make progress on really coming to shared understandings that if I say I'm going to residential treatment, if I bill an insurance company of a certain level of care, that I meet a certain standard that is really universal. And that doesn't exist right now. Um, so to your question about, you know, what are the things to look at? I think we first need to decide what outcome is the ultimate outcome we are shooting for. And the biggest measurable in our industry really is around substance use. That is ultimately the end measurement um, because why they come into treatment is that the use of substances has really disrupted their lives medically, psychologically, socially, all that kind of stuff. So that's one of the pieces that we look at. But we also understand that there's a lot of things that influence that outcome, um, you know, from the quality of uh, life that I have, the relationships with my family, my financial stability, all those kinds of things. So we have done several things here at Gateway, and we can talk about this separately, but 
when I walked in the door in 2015, we did an analysis of really everything that we did as an organization and what outcome should we be collecting. And the only data that we gathered at that time was client satisfaction. And it was only gathered by people that graduated. It wasn't gathered by people who left early. Um, it was really a select sample that wasn't representative. Um, it's an important thing to gather, but we also wanted to gather what happens at, during treatment about those outcomes that matter, what happens at discharge, and what happens after they leave. So there's a lot to dig into there. I think the first thing is you mentioned about um, who to track and how to track, right? So you know, there is a lot of, um, you know, for, for back a level, better term here, smoke and mirrors in the field sometimes with treatment outcomes. You'll see it on a website where they have like a 90% completion rate. Um, but either maybe that's just not entirely accurate or they're just talking to the people that they can get a hold of, which are statistically much more likely to obviously um, be in a better place if they're willing to answer a survey about their, uh, you know, use or recovery. So how do you get around that issue or what were you, what have you been doing at Gateway? It's a great question. Um, so the first thing that I did is when I looked at my organization was to see if we had the internal confidence to really do a rigorous study. You know, and part of my background is academic um, research is really a primary drive of mine. And we didn't have the internal confidence. And as I thought about it more and talked to my team more, even if we had the confidence, I felt like if my staff were the one calling people, it would influence the answers they got. Because, you know, number one, we would have to rely upon the interviewer to write down the answer that represented the, you know, what the client said. And the client might have shame and embarrassment of telling them, you know, they're not doing well. And so we contracted with the Omni Institute out of Colorado and built with them a questionnaire that really evaluated all the social determinants of health we could think of, um, all the indicators we could think of at the time, and it got some baseline data of who they were. And we randomly enrolled 150 patients from two of our facilities, and we tested them at admission, at discharge, and then at 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, 6 months, and 12 months. And they did all of the work for us. So there was really none of the bias that can come from us doing it. There was no potential of us kind of managing the numbers to make us happier with the numbers. Um, and really, it was a fantastic study. The information that came out of it was great. So how, I don't know how deeply you were involved with their process, but how did they get in touch with everybody? And how did they avoid that situation of, you know, just connecting with the people that, that were happy to connect? It's really hard, you know, and, I, and, I, and I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about what we're doing now, because what we did then, you can't scale it. You know, I mean, we served in that year in Illinois 17,000 people, um, and the, they made five to 12 attempts to reach people. They gathered, you know, text information, email information, you know, other contact information. So they had a robust um, array of ways to get in touch with people, and they offered 10 and $20 gift cards and things like that. So there was an incentive for people to participate. Uh, and we found really good success rates um, on following through with people, even through the 12-month point. Mm. Um, for an organization um, like ours that treats as many people as we treat, we had to figure out what is a virtual way we could do that. And what I did following that research study is we built into our electronic health record the Brief Addiction Monitor, which is a 17-question inventory. It's a great tool, um, and it's easy to administer and measure so that we got that data from patients while they were with us. And we then integrated that into 
a phone application that can be given to clients after they leave. And now we're pushing the BAM out to people and getting data back to really determine on a much larger scale. We could get, we have 3,000 people, I think, right now that have downloaded the app. Mm, okay. Uh, and when did that start? When did you guys start doing that um, as a electronic or part of the app? So we did the study from 17 to 18. Um, the application went into development in 2019, um, and it launched in the beginning of 20. Um, and okay. so it's been scaled up over this year. Um, and we are right now at the point of beginning to, you know, you really want six to 12 months worth of data yeah. before you can do any meaningful analysis. Um, so we're at the six month point from really the first data that we received. So the next six to 12 months is going to be very meaningful. Got it. Okay. Um, then you mentioned part of the challenge here is that there, there weren't metrics in place. People didn't know what to track, uh, per se. And then also, uh, before we got on the call here, you had a mention to me about the fact that the payers don't necessarily even know, right? The payers are focused on some particular metrics, but not necessarily, um, those might not necessarily be the best metrics to be tracking. Kind of walk us through a little bit of that conversation and walk us through a little bit about what you think the best metrics are that both providers and payers should be looking at. Sure. You know, I think I think first is that you need to develop really good relationships with the people that make decisions um, at the payer side. Um, and that's not the people that do utilization review. And it's really not the executive senior leadership level. Um, and so there's work team. Cigna, for example, is one of the payers out there that I think is the most advanced in this area. And so we've had several meetings with them and talked about what matters to you as a payer. And the biggest thing that they really focus on is the amount of medical costs that happens before treatment versus after treatment, and they want to see that cost go down. So we educate them about the relationship between substance use and medical utilization. And they gave us a grant from the Cigna Foundation, for example, um, to do a really exciting peer-driven intervention, and we develop pay-for-performance bonusing that the better that we do in that outcome, you know, the better that our rates and our relationship gets. And so that's the biggest thing that they look at. It's really interesting. I mean, because that's in line with you know, other conversations that we've had on this show about their focus is really on reducing medical costs. But, you know, I was really just intrigued by that comment that you made that, you know, you're right. There are all, all these other determinants that go into, you know, precursors or also better understanding what might be driving some of that medical cost. That's obviously a little bit more directly related to to what we're doing within an addiction treatment center or a behavioral health program. Well, and I think I would add, Nick, that what's really exciting, I think, about as a field where we are right now and what I expect over the next 12 to 24 months is in the medical world, there's much more sophisticated it, you know, alternative payment models, um, especially for chronic disease like diabetes, kidney, et cetera, um, where they have really worked with providers on what is the treatment model that you provide. And that's, I think, the next step for us. And so we have a strategic partner that is helping us to really craft our proposition to payers, work directly with payers to help build a treatment model, because that's what I really think we need to do collectively is have an agreement of if patient A walks in with symptom presentation B, what do we give them that will lead to the outcomes that they want? And that's, I think, where we're headed. Uh, would you be willing to elaborate on that? Because I'm kind of curious about what's being built into that treatment model. And um, related to that question is, you know, a lot of discussion right now around multiple pathways to recovery. So how, how flexible would that model be or how flexible do you think it would need to be? Sure. I mean, I think, so first off, I would say that we live in a discrete treatment world right now where, 
somebody might enter in the outpatient level, and when they complete outpatient, they're gone. Or somebody might enter residential treatment and hopefully step down to outpatient, and then they're gone. But it's discrete ends at that point. Um, and most substance use providers that do residential treatment, for example, don't also have community-based supports for the person and don't have discharge, post-discharge-related supports. So the model that we envision and that I think payers are interested in that I also in the field literature shows brings the right outcomes is adding in a peer support component that is community-based to help them meet the living skills and also have a virtual tool that keeps them engaged for a 12-month window. I mean, what we know from the research is between 90 days of treatment and 12 months of treatment that it's like 30% success versus 80% success. I mean, it's a massive mm-hmm. changer. And the only way to keep them engaged is that using virtual mechanisms. That's interesting. So a little bit off topic, but this has been pretty pertinent in the field lately. You know, how do you feel about those telehealth expansions, but outside of the communities that you're operating your physical locations in? I think it's a fantastic thing because part of what we as an industry have really struggled with is there's a lot of communities where there's not enough demand to have a physical presence. Yeah. And a lot of the patients that need our support don't have the means or the resources to get to somewhere where there is treatment. So one of the things that we are actively engaging is if you look at some of those white space communities where there's no provider, that having a virtual presence and partnerships with local you know, physicians and chiropractors and all those that come in contact with you know, those who need support, where they can link us, it's really an amazing way to extend the penetration of services in the industry. Makes a lot of sense. And then if you're connecting to local providers on the ground, I think one of my concerns, I know sometimes the payer's concerns is if there's a telehealth program and you know, you're operating in Chicago and you're connected to a patient in Georgia, how truly beneficial is that to the patient if you're not connected to their community of care? But if you're going through local networks and building those relationships and then having those connections to help the, you know, foster and, and kind of create deeper integrations through the telehealth services, I think that provides a lot of value. Well, I think part of what we need to watch as well is, you know, what we saw in the last 15 years in the field is there was a lot of profiteering when President Obama's health plan required all health plans to include substance use treatment services, that suddenly treatment to the middle class was accessible, whereas before it was much more available to high net worth and indigent patients. There was not as much in the middle. And so people rushed to fill the void. So based on how telehealth is rolled out, I think that it will create that opportunity again where people come in and it's, you know, low scalable. And somebody's going to need to really monitor whether or not the person who is offering that service is truly qualified to offer that service what controls they have in place. It gets to the same issue that we had in the Florida models that, you know, people pointed to recovery homes that really were very dangerous environments. It's the same could be true in telehealth substance use treatment. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're absolutely right. You know, it's a really good point. And the opportunity is kind of presenting itself again, especially as with kind of COVID and post COVID here as the States reduce regulations around licensing and telehealth which I think has a lot of advantages, obviously, but there are going to be these opportunities for people to come in, you know, with negative business models again. It could be. I mean, if I were creating the policy, I think what I would mandate is that the only providers allowed to do the service would be a licensed credited program that has a physical presence somewhere. You know, so if you take a Gateway Foundation or Hazelden or some of the other players or even a local smaller provider 
as long as they have a demonstrated physical presence that is accredited and licensed, then I think they can say they're qualified to provide care. I think if there's kind of a ghost ship somewhere that, you know, advertised to have certain people, that's where the real risk is going to come into play. Yeah, I really, yeah, you're, you're right. That's a really excellent point. I think that's probably the way to move forward with it. You know, I mean, maybe down the line there can be kind of these pure online providers, but you need to find different ways to, to regulate and monitor, monitor what they're doing. You mentioned part of what you wanted to do with the clinical outcomes was the standardization component. And this question always comes up, but who should be responsible for this? I mean, where, where are these standardized outcomes ultimately going to come from? You know, it's funny, Nick, because we've got a lot of people out there trying to do this. You know, the, the American Society of Addiction Medicine historically um, worked with the National Association of Treatment Providers, for example, to launch the level of care decision tree. It was a brilliant thing. It helped the field be much more focused and knowledgeable. ACM has worked recently to make inroads on license, you know, on accrediting 3.5 level programs, for example. One of ours was a pilot site. And I was on a couple of advisory boards for ACM that were digging into this deeper. You also have Shatterproof that's working to try to help consumers make decisions. You know, NAATP is doing values. NIDE is doing research. There's no one group that is really collectively doing this. And I think that it, there needs to be either a collective or one of them that is identified who is going to evaluate what the research says. You know, Nora Volko knows more about the actual science than anybody in the world. Um, but I don't know that she knows about what's happening on the ground and then vice versa. Um, so there needs to be a new integrated partnership of some kind to achieve that. Yeah, it's, it's a real tough kind of nut to crack that I don't think anyone's really come up with. And you're right, right now, there, there are definitely a number of providers and different organizations that are trying to put this in place. It is kind of different, and I'm, I'm curious to see how that evolves. <laughs> Me too. You know, and you know, there's still enough fragmentation in the space that it's it's pretty hard to get everyone around one table per se. <laughs> yes, I would agree. So moving on to a little bit more boots on the ground perspective on all of this, and something you mentioned in the article was the part around feedback informed care, which I think is yes. really important in improving those actual outcomes. Right? It's not just tracking outcomes, but how do we use, actually use them and use them to improve the quality of care we're providing. So can you walk us through how you are implementing that at Gateway? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think there's there's two ways to think about it. One is the client-focused and facing piece of what do I do literally with you as my client to help your personal outcome be better. And I think that's one track that we all should be working on. So part of why we integrated the Brief Addiction Monitor into our assessment is that anytime they evaluate the treatment plan and update the treatment plan, they administer that, they talk to the client about, you know, what the outcomes are. And what I like about the BAM is it comes up with a protective score, in essence, what is going to increase their likelihood of success and a risk score of what's putting them in danger. And so we use that live time actively with patients. And with the post-discharge BAM, we have we're building where we can reach out to people who are showing up higher with risk factors and protective factors. So hmm. that's like the direct client piece. From a programmatic standpoint, one of the kind of living examples for recently that's really lifetime is we found that 80% of our patients were experiencing physical withdrawal from a substance that they used. So we added in you know, withdrawal management protocols across the board. 
but we were not licensed to do 3.7 level, you know, non-hospital medical detox. And we evaluated it, got enough data to say we are underserving our clients by not doing this. So we applied for licenses. Now in Illinois, we have 180 licensed 3.7 level cares. Mm. This year, we're going to invest about a million dollars into staffing up those specific programs so that really we're meeting the needs of the patient. Because at the end of the day, if we treat part of the patient or we undertreat some of the patient, then their outcomes go down. And we, in essence, have failed our job to them. I mean, I, my ultimate job and obligation is to help provide patients with everything that they can get to be successful. I, I love that example because it, it's so important that you're right. You see the gap, you see what's coming out in the BAM and you're saying, okay, well, what can we actually add to our overall clinical programming to meet those needs? That's, that's fantastic. I'm kind of curious. I, so I know your data is very new and you don't really have a whole lot back yet, but have you been able to see any improvements in outcomes as p those processes have been implemented? I don't yet have that knowledge. I wish I could say yes. Um, something that I get in trouble for sometimes is I am overly practicing integrity. <laughs> I never misrepresent. Yeah. Um, anecdotally, I'm hearing good things about it. Um, and, and I think that the other piece is that we also have an obligation to our staff, frankly. And if we're not supplying them with the, with the resources that they need, they can't be successful. And if I have a person in our program who is really struggling with withdrawal, it's harder for staff. So that's another piece that I think is exciting and that we have to focus on. What I can say that is an older example uh, is another thing that we real when we did some internal analysis about three years ago was that 65% of the people that we treated had co-occurring mental health disorders. And we have historically been a substance use facility, have never done standalone mental health treatment, and we're underserving that population. And so we looked externally to say who benchmarks this because I want always to be benchmarked against an outside rather than an inside, mm. or else it's kind of really just my opinion of am I good enough. Um, Dartmouth University has the DDCAT um, kind of evaluation system that says here are the components you need. They have different levels, and we were recognized for all of our residential programs as meeting the enhanced level of DDCAT, and there was only two in the country at the time that we did this. Um, that has created meaningful in outcomes in those who are struggling with both mental health and substance use disorders. That's a great example. And what about at the individual clinician level? Are they able to kind of see the BAM results that are coming back from patients? And is any feedback being used, you know, either in determining which individual clinicians are perhaps in need of additional support or just in terms of the clinicians monitoring performance and being able to apply um, different uh, approaches or modalities that might support them? You know, anything kind of at that granular level? That's a fantastic question. Um, so the clinicians are able to see the data live time for the patients that they see. And so they are using that actively in their own work. From a supervisory standpoint, one of my master's degrees is in marriage and family therapy. And there was a lot of behind the mirror stuff back then where literally people would watch you doing counseling and call in and give you feedback and stuff like that. And it was a tremendously powerful tool. Um, something that we are evaluating is how can we integrate this data into that process? And it's really complicated. You know, we as a field are very under underfunded. Mm. And that is a financial investment that would be significant. At the same time, I think that the return on investment from the outcome standpoint would be great. And so as we are working to negotiate alternative payment models, it is looking to the funders to say, look, gateway is a more expensive treatment 
program. We don't charge more for people. We are, we're actually cheaper than I think any private provider out there that I know of. But ignoring that fact, um, we invest a huge amount into our product itself. And I think building relationships with payers, we can get investments into those kinds of initiatives to really continue to evolve um, our feedback loop. From the individual clinician perspective, you know, when you talk about those additional costs, do you think it's partly the supervisory cost or do you just think it's also the amount of the time the clinician has in their day to, you know, review individual patient clinical outcomes? Like, where do you see the majority of that cost coming from? I think it comes down to caseload, really, is that the more development you do for your staff, the fewer patients they can support is kind of the bottom line. And uh, we have a constant challenge of workforce recruitment, um, you know, that there's funding issues about how many staff can you have. So I think that it's a multi-pronged approach, you know, that if you're able to double your staff, you've got a lot more time for development. If you go back to the DDCAT example that I shared, one of the requirements for that is really integrating an evidence-based model, um, having train-the-trainer type people. So Marsha Lenahan's dialectical behavior therapy was the modality that we integrated in a formal way. And we invested into training all staff and consistently supporting staff on their training. So that's really an example of that. But I think that the next wave of that is how do you make caseloads small enough and supervisors um, loads enough that they really can spend a lot of time on individual outcome management. I think also a challenge is, you know, that a lot of clinicians haven't necessarily been trained in a way that, you know, takes feedback informed care into approach. So you have a whole cost element in, you know, basically training uh, a lot of your staff on just how that works on top of actually giving them time to look at the data itself. Yeah, and I think it needs to be a corporate culture issue as well. You know, of I've worked for different, you know, for-profit and not-for-profit, something that I really set as an example for myself and for the organization is that we drive our mission every single day and make strategic choices and financial investments based on our mission, which is to, you know, save and change lives. And I think that for leaders who are out there listening to this, they need to really think about how are they leading the team, setting examples and investing financially and time-wise into the things that we know will move the needle. And it's just a requirement. Yeah, I agree. And yeah, I was just talking about this the other day with a couple of people, but at the end of the day, when you're looking at, it doesn't really matter if you're a healthcare provider or some other kind of business, what you're trying to do is move your mission forward, right? Right. And when it comes down to things like revenue and finances, I mean, that's just a function at the end of the day. You know, the goal of the organization is to move that mission forward. And if you stay on that track, and I just see this consistently with providers, the providers that do what you're talking about, really committed to the mission, they make the improvements that they need to have, you know, the best quality program or with the best differentiation in whatever area it is that allows them to be successful. And the revenue just kind of follows along with that. You know, obviously you have to have fiscal responsibility, but it just, it just all comes together. You know, it just really does. And so I really like that comment. You know, you're right. You, you have to follow the mission. I agree. And, you know, something that I've always believed and, you know, I'm a person in long-term recovery and I think much of you know, the leader that I am today comes from, you know, everything, frankly, from the minute I was born to now, but part of it comes from that recovery background. And, you know, I was taught in working the steps that if I do the right thing for the right reason, then the right things happen. 
if I do the wrong things, then good things don't happen. And so we as an organization of Gateway Foundation, we really try to live by that premise to the best of our ability. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So you, let's go back to metrics for a second here um, and just get a couple more specifics on those. So you talked about in the article about abstinence rates. That was one of the metrics that you guys were looking at and also recommending um, that payers take into account. But can you give us some more uh, specific metrics that you're tracking, especially around some of those social determinants that you were mentioning that you're trying to get the payers to focus on? You bet. I mean, so one of them that we focus on that's a really good index is is recovery capital. Um, and there's a lot of articles out there. If somebody wants to read about what it is, it's more than just what it sounds like, um, but it's also what it sounds like. It's a measure that really indicates what is, it includes a lot of social determinants of health around work and employment and stuff like that. So in the research project we did, the prospective study, the average was 42.4 when they walked in the door. 12 months later, it was 49.5. What the recovery capital research shows is that if you get to a score of 47 or above, that your rates of staying in recovery for 12 months are you know, at the right level. That's really kind of the target that you shoot for. So we look for those kinds of things. Um, you know, the other things we look at are, are life satisfaction. Um, one of the things that was interesting from that research study that we have worked to try to really think through how do we apply that, um, that the most statistically significant factor for those that were successful in their recovery versus those who were not successful in their recovery was their self-reported um, level of effort. This is interesting when you think about that. Um, is those who said, I tried harder, had better outcomes. And so if you step back and think about, well, what do you do with that? Like, how can you help somebody knowing that that's true? Is part of what we have work to do is to educate people to some degree and, and say, if you, if you believe you're working hard, it doesn't even matter if you are working hard. If you believe you're working hard, you're going to do better. And I think it's, be I think it's because of buy-in. Um, so that's one of the things we look at. And I think the other that really, really matters is around um, optimism and really kind of hope at the end of the day. So that's another one that we looked at. And with our folks, when they came in, and this is on a one to five scale, that they came in at 2.7 and 12 months later, we're at 3.8. Like what an incredible improvement when you think about it. Um, and what it talks to me about is, you know, it's kind of the self-actualization thing is, if I believe that I can function well, and if I believe that the world is a good place in, in heart, my need to use substances goes down. Yeah, I, I, mean, I talk about that quite a bit. There, there's a lot in recovery that, whether it's mental health or addiction, that's a self-fulfilling prophecy. And if you really believe that it's possible, um, you're gonna get a lot farther. It just kind of goes back to that fixed mindset versus the growth mindset research you know, that's been done in education for a long time. Um, I think it also fits in with, with the therapeutic alliance. You know, when you look at that data and you look at that research, you, you see that when the therapeutic alliance is strong, people have really positive outcomes. And that's because they have that buy-in, right? You know, whether you're doing 12-step facilitation or dialectical behavioral therapy, it actually matters more if the patient buys into the philosophy through the relationship with the therapist than the modality itself oftentimes. Yeah, and the other piece of that, if you remember in the research, is also... There was kind of like three pieces that came out. One was the therapeutic alliance. The second was if they believed that their therapist was good, which is interesting. Um, so in essence, if they had faith that they had a therapist who was competent. And so if you think about that measure, 
it comes back to staff development of what are you doing to help your staff feel competent? Because this is a tremendously hard field, you know, and we don't see the successes as much as we see those who do not succeed in staying in recovery because they come back and back and back. So I think our emotional resilience is compromised. And we work hard as an organization and do an externally benchmarked staff engagement survey every year through Press Ganey, which is another thing that, frankly, I think all providers should be measuring as important, frankly, as client outcomes. Because if you're not engaging your staff, your client outcomes go down. And on a scale of one to five, this is kind of the same thing. There's an overall engagement score that comes out of it. In the year that I started, our overall score was 3.91. And the following year is 3.914. It basically went, <clears throat> pardon me, over a three-year period from 3.91 to four. And that doesn't sound massive, but that moved us up 30 points. But it was amazing, you know, kind of what that matters. And where they scored the highest was their belief in the mission and their love of the work. And that, to me, was a huge success. I, I like the fact that you bring in the uh, provider end of it, too, in terms of the clinicians and how they're dealing with everything. Because you're right. I mean, burnout and just kind of empathy, fatigue, and all that stuff does build into it. And, and you see it. It does affect the patients. And so, well, it's, you know, I think it's clear in the data and the research. It's also just clear when you walk the halls, you know. Yes. Yes, I would agree. So you've taken some of this data. Oh, actually, you know, before that, you mentioned something that was interesting to me. The recovery capital piece I'm obviously familiar with, but I was wondering if you knew off the top of your head what that particular research was, that that particular 47 data point. Do you, do you know what that was? Do you mean... I'm not sure, Nick. I, I'd have to. I have the article literally in my email. So, I mean, in my hard drive, I'll send it to you. Yeah. What I'd like to do is, if you can find it, I'll link it in the show notes because that sounds really sure. interesting, and I'm sure a lot of listeners would also be interested in, in diving deeper into that. Yeah, I'll send it to you. All right. So you've got all these outcomes that you're sharing with the payers, and I'm really curious, you know, how that's benefited Gateway. You know, have you been able to? build better relationships with them? Have you been able to negotiate stronger contracts? You know, what has been the actual um, reimbursement outcome on that level? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, it really does go back to that point that if you're not bringing in revenue and growing revenue, then you can't grow your product. Um, we've been successful as far as creating new um, payment relationships and structures. Um, we have also been able to successfully negotiate the increase of our rates um, into, you know, kind of year-over-year -year improvements, which is really a critical thing. You know, most rates started at an unpleasant place, but we've been successful at that. And we've also been successful, you know, on the other side of this, which is, you know, really in the utilization review world, um, the longer that one stays, the longer that a payer authorizes them to stay, the better the outcomes are. So we've also done initiatives that have helped us in that vein. You know, in some ways, they trust us to be using their resources well. Yeah, that utilization piece is kind of becoming more and more common with the payers, right? A lot more requests, and that obviously drives up costs on the provider end. So you've actually seen them, you know, reducing the number of requests that are coming in for utilization review, basically. We've seen improvements in that, yes. Wow. 
on the value-based care contract, I'm curious to, you know, just general perspective on that. You know, it's, it's new for a lot of providers. Um, it's got, you know, kind of risk on both sides, which I think is beneficial versus the fee-for-service model necessarily. But how has that been working out for you? And just what are your opinions on that value-based care model in general? Well, I mean, the first caution I would give to providers is they need somebody internally or under a consultant agreement who's really competent enough to understand their cost model so that they can ask for the right things. Um, because if you don't understand your costs, you don't understand what risks you're taking on. Yeah. Um, we as an organization made a contractual agreement with one of the payers uh, in Illinois where we took 2,000 lives um, onto our risk pool. And in essence, our agreement was to provide specific services to that population. And it was a really good outcome for us and for the payer. And this year, they're going to increase that up to 10,000 lives. And, you know, it's a great thing for many reasons. One is I think that the patients that are insured by them get a better access to care from really a reputable provider. You know, I'm, I am very proud of this organization and feel honored to be a part of it. Um, it also gives us a resume to go to, you know, the big boys. You know, Blue Cross is the largest payer in every single market in the country. Um, and they're the ones, obviously, that we want to be in a deep relationship with to say, how do we collectively help, you know, the lives of those that you serve and let's partner on that. There's over 4 million people just in Illinois. I think what you mentioned there in terms of knowing your numbers is the biggest issue that we come up on the consulting end with. You know, when you're trying to negotiate these downline risks, you can't unless you know what your costs are and what you know, what you, your potential revenue is, right? And so all these providers really struggle with determining what it costs them, you know, per day, per bed, per level of care. And so this really kind of relates into the the outcomes tracking in general, right? Just outside the clinical outcomes. Is that something that you had to build in at Gateway or was that already there before you came on? It was something I had to build in. The financial team that I have here is, is very, very strong. Um, and it has also been something that we have looked to outside partners to fill in the gaps for us. You know, I mean, I think, I think an imperative for all of us is to kind of understand what we are good at and what we're not good at and not try to do things that we can't do ourselves. Yeah. You know, what, what is challenging for small providers, and I think we have not seen as much merger activity as I would expect, frankly, um, in this industry. And I think a lot of people are scared of it and not-for-profit worlds. You've got a lot of mission and personality tied to it. But yeah. the 3 to $5 million providers or the $1 million providers, they could never have that level of competency. Um and they can't, you know, really take the risk because yeah. you could have three patients that cost you $200,000, for example, in a year. And so there really does need to be some scale for success at this level. And we have 600 residential beds in Illinois, for example. And we have, I don't know, 1,000 people in outpatient care every day. That that gives us enough of a buffer to be able to absorb um, risk differently, I think, than smaller providers can. I completely agree. You know, I really feel that the field is going to more and more consolidate. And I'm like you, I'm, I'm actually fairly surprised that it hasn't consolidated quicker. But I just think that it's um, it's been more challenging than people thought it would be, you know, to really bring providers together, but also to scale the business models, uh, especially across diverse geographies. You know, that's really been kind of a hiccup for a lot of providers is how do we manage all these, you know, different payer environments, different demographics of patients that we're working with. And 
and just the the different um, realities of dealing with people that are either having different primary drugs of choice or mental health issues, you know, rural versus urban, all that stuff goes into it and it becomes, I think, a challenge organizationally to, to make it all work. I mean, it definitely does. And, you know, where we've seen a lot of the activity is more on the for-profit side where the billing and the patient population is much more simple in the yeah. sense if you only bill commercially insured people and you only do residential treatment or only do outpatient treatment, it's just more simple. And a lot of them don't have the legacies. And so as we look at the smaller not-for-profits, for example, they've had 30, 40 years of really practice. And it is much, much you know, more complicated, frankly, to pull them together. And it becomes really kind of a risk-benefit analysis of how much energy do you put in and what is the risk, you're, you know, the benefit you're going to get in return. And it, it's not really there right now in the smaller space for not-for-profits to make that a viable solution. Yeah, I would agree. You, and you made a comment that I really want to highlight, the fact that when you first had your payer contracts that they weren't great, right? And that's really common, you know. And so relating to your comments about scale here, you know, you can't really absorb that risk and take on low-level contracts knowing that you're going to be able to renegotiate those a couple of years down the line after you've proven yourself, after you've got the clinical outcomes to provide to the payers to renegotiate those rates and, and you've got the clout to do it. So to your point, you know, just being a smaller provider, it's, it's, it's I don't even know if it's possible to, you know, necessarily do that long-term or, or accept that level of risk. It's different. And I think especially for a mission, you know, prioritizing organization like this, I, I, and I think, and I make that distinction purposefully because I don't think there's some unfair advantage of mission for for-profit or not-for-profit or anything like that. I think, I think providers on both sides of that tax status have different investments in their mission and exemplify that differently. Um, for a mission prioritizing organization like ours, we want to provide equal care to all patients that we treat, whether they are private pay, whether they're commercially insured, whether they're publicly insured, or whether they're uninsured. And I think that's part of the business model that we have been able to successfully develop um, that's worked really well for us is we are able to provide an incredibly high level of care to indigent patients because of the portfolio of patients we treat have really varied payment structures. And I think that's something that is a luxury for us that I'm really grateful for. And the alternative payment model arrangements that are coming out in the um, payer environment right now, it is the managed care Medicaid organizations who frankly are more interested, I think, now in entering that space than the commercial payers. I'm curious organizationally how that works out because that can get pretty complex. You know, when you've got different payers, different levels of care, um, different patients with different approval levels, you know, do you end up just optimizing your cost structure for the lowest common reimbursement or do you end up having different models in place for different reimbursement structures? We have different models virtually down to the patient level, frankly, hmm. um, because even, you know, if they're Blue Cross Blue Shield, for example, if that's what it says on their card, it's not always the same Blue Cross. Um, so, you know, we have on our, you know, administrative central office team, there's 80 people here, 25 or so of which all they do is accounts receivable type work. And so it's a very complicated behind the scenes effort for the volume that we see. Well, I really appreciate all of the time, Tom. And 
just really great information for everyone out there. In terms of the clinical outcomes and feedback-informed care and everything we covered today, is there anything else that we didn't cover that you think would be worth sharing? Boy, isn't that always the biggest question, you know, <laughs> at the end of every interview? Right. Um, you know, I, I think ultimately the final piece that I would just kind of put, if I were to summarize everything that I hope one would hear from this conversation, is that if you're in this field, and especially if you're a leader in this field, that your priority needs to be to increase the likelihood of success for those that we treat, and that we cannot do that without data, and that we cannot do that without analyzing the data, and that much more importantly, we can't do that if we reinvest the learnings of that data into the treatment. And so I think that's, that's the biggest takeaway that I hope people hear. Well, I would strongly second that. That's a, that's a perfect note to end on there. Uh, Tom, if someone wants to get in touch with you or get in touch with Gateway, uh, what would be the best way to do that? Yeah, the best way to reach us is, you know, you've heard me say Gateway Foundation many times. Gatewayfoundation.org is the easiest way to find us on the website. Um, Gatewayfoundation.org, you will see options to chat live with one of our folks. Um, and interestingly, they literally have avatars that look like them, which is very cute. <laughs> I like it. Um, <laughs> You know, we have a 24-hour call center that takes as many as 800 calls a day uh, as well. Um, and we do virtual um, kind of video calls with people for prospective treatment as well. And, you know, what's cool right now in the virtual environment is, you know, people can literally get assessed, begin outpatient treatment virtually with never having walked in the door. Um, it's a really safe time to come to treatment. Wow. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Uh, for everyone out there, this is the Recovery Executive Podcast, and I'm your host, Nick Jaworski. We'll see you next time. Thanks, Nick.